Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. You know how I'm always telling you guys to bet on red? Well, if you head over to Bet Online Sportsbook, you can put together a nice little parlay of Patrick Mahomes to win MVP, Kansas City to get the number one seed in the AFC, and Kansas City to win the Super Bowl, tallying together at a nice value of plus 1150. Use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on that first deposit when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous December 6th, 2022. Hope y'all are having a fantabulous day, however and whenever it is that you may be stopping in. We're going to talk baseball today. We're going to talk baseball transactions today. I have some other stuff on the back burner. We'll see if we get to any of them today. But today we're going to talk about baseball and see where we go from there. Because baseball's free agency, we're recording this Monday night, baseball's free agency in the last 24 hours has gone pretty insane. And the reason baseball transactions are so much fun to talk about is of the sports that I follow. And of the sports that I roughly, I have a rough understanding of the economic structures with which are set up in those sports. So we're talking about UFC, boxing, football, college and pro, basketball, college and pro, baseball, NBA, men's and women's, tennis to a certain extent. Of the sports in which the uh, golf is also in this group, of the sports that I understand the rough economic structure of, which basically is to say soccer seems really interesting with how their economic structure is set up. As you hear today that Cristiano Ronaldo might get $200 million a year to finish his career playing soccer in Saudi Arabia. He's taking that blood money the same way the live golf dudes are taking that blood money at the end of their careers What's interesting to me about baseball and baseball free agency and baseball transactions is that the economic structure of baseball is so unique to any of the other sports. And the reason that's the case is, number one, baseball doesn't really have a salary cap. It has a luxury tax. It doesn't quite have a salary cap. Reason number two Baseball contracts are set up in such a way that the the players who are first coming into the league are so ridiculously underpaid 
that any semblance of a salary cap that comes from the luxury tax doesn't really exist. And so baseball's financial structure is set up in such a way where at the beginning of your career, you are grossly, grossly underpaid, which then opens the door for tons of money to be allocated to free agents. And the third part that makes baseball free agency and baseball transactions so interesting is you basically are at the start of a race waiting for the pistol or the starter to go off. And when you're waiting for the starter to go off at the start of the race, you kind of know when the race is going to start. And at the same time, you're also just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then one transaction happens and that's the starter. And then everyone starts running at the same time. And so what happens is baseball free agency started three weeks ago. Mike Clevenger, formerly of my San Diego Padres, signed with the Chicago White Sox pretty close to two weeks ago. And there's been other smaller transactions like the Astros bringing in Jose Abreu, who is a former MVP during the pandemic season and surprisingly 34 years old. I was shocked to learn that Jose Abreu was 34 years old. But he got a contract from Houston. They already did the press conference. Like, there's been transactions that have been going on for three weeks. Whereas in the NFL, every player signs within the first three days of free agency. And in the NBA, every player signs before the free agency window opens. And then once the June 30th window hits, you get all of the transactions one after the other getting reported by NBA within like three hours. So... Baseball is interesting where it's like rumors, 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 rumors. Holy shit, everyone is signing their contracts all at once. And you have no preparation for when that's going to happen. And that's what happened this week. A couple years ago, that happened in February. Uh, A year ago, it happened uh, right before the lockout, which was kind of around the same week as last year, just because everyone knew they had to get their contracts in, except Carlos Correa. Everyone knew they had to get their contracts in before the lockout buzzer on, I think, December 10th. So that created a wild window of contracts being signed. And this year it happened over the weekend and into Monday. So let's talk about baseball transactions. And since we're going to start talking about some baseball transactions, let's play our baseball intro, or I guess our Major League Baseball Star Wars movie intro. You know, the, the beginning of Star Wars where they have the the letters in space going up to describe the situation. Uh, That's basically, I recreated that, but with Major League Baseball. Some of it needs to be updated. For the most part, it's pretty still accurate, except the resistance, which is the San Diego Padres, defeated the Holy Dodger Empire, the 111-win Holy Dodger Empire, in four games in the playoffs. So Here we go. To get in the mindset of talking Major League Baseball transactions, let us travel to a galaxy far, far away. Episode 4. The Holy Dodger Empire continues their reign over the West. In previous years, the Holy Dodger Empire dismantled the once great Royal Cardinals, establishing a new power within the galaxy. The Holy Dodger Empire defeated the Royal Cardinals, invaded the Mill of Waukee, and vanquished the 107-win Giants. In the meantime, the Holy Dodger Empire pillaged both the Purple Rockies 
and the Backs of Diamond in Arizona. These invasions increase the Empire's wealth tenfold. Their resources are unmatched, their power is unquestioned. With the West and the Central firmly in control, the Holy Dodger Empire sets their sights on a new conquest, the Eastern Empire State. If the Holy Dodger Empire defeats Master Cohen and his Met army of queens, there will be nothing left to stop them from conquering the galaxy. To the south, a small resistance forms in San Diego. While outnumbered and outresourced, the resistance fights for their very existence against the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. It's a changing time in the galaxy. The once great Imperial Nationals of Washington have fallen. Years earlier, the Imperial Nationals once defeated the Holy Dodger Empire at the Battle of Strasbourg. Now, they find themselves bankrupt and selling pieces to the highest bidder. In this collapse, the Holy Dodger Empire captured a great captain known as Mad Max, who helped strengthen the Holy Dodger Empire's hold on the galaxy. However, Mad Max has escaped and defected to Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens. He will spend whatever years he has left fighting to dismantle the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. And now, the legendary Imperial Captain Juan Soto has joined the Resistance after paying his debt to Kara the Hutt. To San Diego, Captain Juan Soto brings with him the Imperial Nationals' mighty Josh Bell. Joining Captain Soto is Lord Hader, the supreme closer of the Mill of Waukee, called to fight by the message of the Resistance and the possibility of bringing balance to the Force. The Resistance has paid a heavy price, yet they have never been closer to defeating the Holy Dodger Empire. Yes, yes, Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens were very active this weekend. We need to get the Phillies involved somehow in this. Uh, how would the Phillies fit into this Star Wars universe? Anyone who's seen Andor, I'm, I'm going to get around to watching Andor at some point. Um, I've been, I've gotten really into Star Wars in the past year. So anyone who's uh, who's seen Andor, maybe you can help me out of how we can uh, incorporate the Phillies into this Star Wars universe now as uh, Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens makes their march to try and take down the Dodgers, but they don't need to take down the Holy Dodger Empire because the resistance already did that for them. So we got to figure out some way to incorporate Philadelphia into this Star Wars universe. So back to Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens. So let's go backwards to October of this year. We had the extended playoff format. And the New York Mets, who had a 12-and-a-half game lead over the Atlanta Braves, coughed up the division. Atlanta ended up sweeping them the last week of the season, and Pete Alonzo ended up talking about how getting swept by the terrible Chicago Cubs was the reason we lost the division, not getting swept by Atlanta the last weekend of the season. And Atlanta got the two seed. The Mets got the four seed. They had to play the resistance of San Diego, at home, and in that first game, with Max Scherzer pitching, the New York Mets got lit up by Trent Grisham. And then in the second game, Jacob deGrom gave up a home run 
to Trent Grisham. And so the Padres end up winning that series in three games and New York gets eliminated in the wild card with a team that won 100 games and now Jacob deGrom is a free agent. And the New York Mets, who again have Master Cohen, a.k.a. Steve Cohen, hedge fund multi-billionaire guy who instituted a new threshold of the luxury tax because baseball owners are pissed at him spending so much money. Steve Cohen had allocated $40 million to re-sign Jacob deGrom, which is the going rate for Jacob deGrom, whether for right or for wrong, the going rate for a former three-time Cy Young Award winner. Is it two or three? It's either two or three. Like, first ballot Hall of Famer, best pitcher of his generation. Yes, an older pitcher now. He only won two Cy Youngs. Really felt like he won more than two Cy Youngs. But Jacob deGrom, who is 34 years old, was set up for a new contract with the New York Mets. And... Jacob deGrom, they basically allocated $40 million for Jacob deGrom, which would have made him only behind Max Scherzer in terms of the highest paid pitcher in Major League Baseball, which the Mets were absolutely prepared to pay out. And then the New York Mets woke up and offered a three-year, $120 million offer, reportedly at one point, to Jacob deGrom. And over the the previous week, it had reached a place in which the New York Mets were so far behind the eight ball when it came to the contract details that they didn't even reportedly get a chance to make their final offer to Jacob deGrom, which would have been, as reported, three years, $120 million, which again would have made him only behind Max Scherzer in terms of highest paid pitchers in Major League Baseball. And the reason you increase the average annual value is because it's a shorter-term contract. Well, enter the big gun-toting Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers, who spent $300 million on Corey Seager, $180 million on Marcus Semien, despite the fact that they refused to pay Joey Gallo, and correctly, by the way, refused to pay Joey Gallo a new contract and traded him to the New York Yankees, which signified that they'd be, getting, they'd be beginning to rebuild that system. For those who don't know, Texas opened a new stadium. They spent a ton of money, as teams do when they open a new stadium. But in baseball, you can't just spend money and make yourself good. The Anaheim Angels are a great example of this. In the weird system that's set up, you have to have great players on those cheap contracts because, as we said, the first four years of your baseball career, you are criminally underpaid. You are really, really underpaid, and it's the structures that are mutually agreed to. This is what the union trades in exchange for these big contracts for the big-name players. And this this is the way that baseball's salary structures are set up. So Texas had Adolis Garcia, who was really good, but other than him and Dane Dunning, who they acquired, who's a stud now, but they acquired in exchange for their number one starter in Lance Lynn. So they signed Lance Lynn, they signed Mike Miner, they open a new stadium, and then boom, COVID happens. They end up missing the playoffs, and then they start tearing it down. 
But then they turn around 12 months later and spend $300 million on Corey Seager, $180 million on Marcus Semien, bring in Bruce Bochy out of retirement for God knows how much money they had to pay Bruce Bochy to lure him out of retirement where he was a legend in San Francisco. He was still, I'm living here in Northern California now, Bruce Bochy is still getting commercials for sandwiches on Giants television. Bruce Bochy, who's been retired for four seasons, is still getting commercials on Giants broadcasts because he is the beloved manager of the three-time world champion San Francisco Giants. That dude, God knows how much money Texas had to offer him to bring him out of retirement. And they bring Bruce Bochy in, and they they go doubling down on DeGrom. They go... Not just we're going to offer you the gigantic average annual value, we're going to pay you until you're 39 years old. So the the Mets were like, we're going to offer you a, th- a shorter term contract with the second highest average annual value. And Texas was like, what if we do that but five years? And Jacob deGrom was like, hell yeah. I'm going to secure the bag on that. You're going to give me five years at $40 million a season. It's not exactly $40 million. It's like $37 million. But where do I sign on the dotted line? If you're going to offer five years and $185 million when the next best offer is $120 million guaranteed, when there's no guarantee that Jacob deGrom is going to get another big contract, at 38 years old, it's entirely possible he does the Justin Verlander thing and wins a Cy Young at 40. I would bet against it. The reason I would bet against it, I saw Jacob deGrom this last season give up seven earned runs in three innings against the Oakland Athletics. I saw Trent Grisham take that dude long in a playoff game. Trent Grisham, who had the second worst batting average in the history of baseball for a player who had 500 at-bats. Now, granted, 500 at-bats is a gigantic threshold to hit. For a dude who they keep hitting, he had a gigantic, gigantic failure of a season hitting, and he launched a home run off of Jacob deGrom. And I saw, as I said, Oakland scored seven runs in three innings off Jacob deGrom. And if you look at Jacob deGrom's stats, this is the plateau where things start to decline for Jacob deGrom. Because you can go back to when he becomes the the peak Jacob deGrom, who at one point through three months of a season had more RBIs than runs allowed. Like he as a batter was driving in more runs than he was allowing. Jacob deGrom goes first in Cy Young in 2018. First in Cy Young 2019. By the way, got MVP votes that year. Pandemic season, third. 2021 finishes ninth. Only makes 15 starts compared to 31, 32, 32, and then the maximum possible 12 during the pandemic season. After never missing a start, plays about half the season in 2021. Still finishes ninth in Cy Young. 2022 only makes 11 starts, one of which he gave up seven runs against the Oakland Athletics, finishes with an ERA plus of 126, which is above league average, but it's not the 218 with which he had back in 2018. It's not the 196, or sorry, 169 that he had when he won MVP or when he won Cy Young in 2019. He was an above average pitcher 
in only 11 starts last season. Which is why I look at that deal for the, the for Jacob DeGrom and I'm like, good on you for securing the bag. I'm never going to crap on anyone for securing the bag. Like, it's not my money. If Texas wants to tote their guns and give Corey Seager $300 million, despite the fact Corey Seager has a, a, a war plus, I believe that's the statistic I was looking at, war plus that is lower than Francisco Lindor who his contract is not looking great right now. And at the time, Anthony Rendon signed his deal with the Angels, a lower war plus. But Corey Seager was coming off of being World Series MVP just a year earlier. And so $300 million, cha-ching for Corey Seager. Um, You could look at that situation in Jacob DeGrom, and I'm like, I'm sure that won't turn into a Mad Bum 2.0 contract. A guy who only pitched in 35%, or sorry, if I'm adding up the two seasons, only pitched in 45% of the available start no sorry less than that of his available starts 26 divided by 62 quick math in my head there that's about 40 percent of available starts so we're talking about a guy who pitched in about 40 percent of possible starts the last two seasons and had an era slightly better than the league average I mean, not if you count 2022 exclusively. 2021, he was awesome when he came back. Like, if he hadn't gotten hurt, probably Cy Young second place, third place. But if you look at a guy whose most recent season, he has a come down to earth, only pitches in 40% of his available starts the last two seasons, That and a guy whose game is predicated on 98 miles per hour on his pitches... Yeah, that's probably looking like the Madison Bumgarner contract all over again, which, by the way, was also a surprising five years, and at the time, the second highest average annual value. He got immediately bad, like the first start Madison Bumgarner made with Arizona. He gave up like six runs against the Padres on opening day. Like Mad Bum, it was an immediately bad contract, and I don't think DeGrom's going to be an immediately bad contract because he's never had a below average season up to this point in his career. That deal is not going to look great for Texas. I have a good feeling that deal is not going to look great for Texas on the back end, which I don't even know if Texas necessarily cares about that looking bad on the back end. They are they are paying for two years of peak Jacob deGrom or three years of peak Jacob deGrom. And you know what? I hope you get it because Lord knows you want to compete in that American League West. Lord knows you can't get any top prospects other than Dane Dunning, who you had to give up Lance Lynn in order to acquire Lord knows he can't draft and develop, so good on Texas for trying to make that move. But it left Master Cohen and the Met Army over there like, ah, shit, we just lost our $40 million starter. Let's go with plan B, which they had already mapped out months ago. I don't know if they had to increase their their offer, Um, but they went for 40-year-old Justin Verlander, who, by the way, just won the Cy Young in the American League. It's not like Justin Verlander is a fallback option. Statistically, he's had a better season since having Tommy John surgery than Jacob deGrom. It's it's ridiculous how Justin Verlander has been able to pull that off up to this point in his career, uh, given that it looked like his career was, was dead for rights during the pandemic season where he missed the whole season and then 2021 missed the whole season and then came back and uh, won Cy Young <laughs> immediately after that, which is which is kind of ridiculous. So their fallback option was was Justin Verlander, which is great. And they got him. They, they paid him the highest average annual value of any starter, even over Max Scherzer, 
which I thought was incredible because if you'll remember, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer were teammates on the 2012 Detroit Tigers. And I'm just looking at it like, yo, the Mets are just recreating the Tigers from 10 years ago, which by the way, not the worst strategy in the world. Both of those guys are Hall of Famers, Verlander and Scherzer. Both are in their late 30s, soon to be 40s. And both of them had Cy Young considerations. So like you could make the argument they are worth the two largest contracts of any pitchers in baseball because it's a perfect confluence of events of both of them are going to be free agents two years from now. Both of them are on their probably last big contracts. You're just hoping you can squeeze a little bit more out of both of them the same way that Houston was able to with Verlander this last year on their way to winning a World Series without much competition and the way that the New York Mets did last year when Max Scherzer without Jacob deGrom for 60% of the season was a true number one pitcher for the New York Mets and it's just great that the New York Mets were like oh shit let's go for our plan b option which is we're gonna pay, we're gonna pay the 2012 Detroit Tigers the most money to two starting pitchers in the history of Major League Baseball and it won't be a stupid strategy it won't. And the reason it won't be a stupid strategy is they have infinite resources. You do the best you can under the circumstances. And they've done the other moves. It's not like this is their like fallback option. They allocated $40 million for that starting pitching spot. And damn it if they weren't going to go get that $40 million pitcher. And, you know, they only have so many prospects they can trade. They gave Oakland a bunch of prospects for Mark Canna. Or Mark Canna signed as a free agent. Uh, what is his name? Chris Bassett. Uh, who's their, I believe, number four or three starter at this point. Like, they've done all the moves to reinforce it. When they traded for uh, Francisco Lindor, they got Cookie Carrasco also in that deal. And Cookie Carrasco has been a middle-of-the-rotation middle starter for the Mets. So, like, they're holding up their end of the bargain for the rest of the rotation. They just only had so many players who could actually be considered number one or number two guys and so they're in a situation where they're just like yeah we got 40 million dollars we were gonna give it to DeGrom for three seasons let's give it to Justin Vertlander for two and then reevaluate in two years see if we can get some prospects because they gave away a lot of good shit to get Francisco Lindor and they it seems like from the way Oakland has talked about it I haven't heard it from the Mets perspective but I've heard it from the Oakland perspective they gave away some good shit in order to get Chris uh Chris Bassett last season so it'll be interesting to see they have money they make trades Pete Alonso's on a cheap contract for the foreseeable future they have a balance of young controllable players I mean not a great balance but they have enough of a balance to get them to a roster similar to the Dodgers where just money can buy you 100 wins in that sport um, as long as you have enough young controllable pieces you can buy 100 wins you can't buy 100 wins the way Texas is doing it, which is no young players, Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, Jacob deGrom, Bruce Bochy. It's not going to buy you 100 wins without having a smart developmental system that actually gives you one or two all-stars on rookie contracts. But at the same time, power to them and power to the Mets for spending the infinite resources necessary to take the two best pitchers off the market, swap to Grom for Verlander, which in the short term might be an upgrade. 
in the short term might end up being an upgrade for the New York Mets. They had to spend a little bit more per year to get it. I think it's a short-term upgrade for them. It was just interesting to see Jacob deGrom move out that way and then the the chain of, of events that happened after that fact. It was very entertaining to watch. This leads us into Trey Turner, because Trey Turner was, by all statistical accounts, uh, finished second, second, and third the last th- three seasons at the shortstop position in war, uh, defensively has finished as a gold glove finalist for the past couple seasons. I, I can't remember if he won one. I, I think he won one, but I my mind is fuzzy here. I should, knowing I was going to talk about Trey Turner, probably should have had the stats up in the first place, but... Uh, at the same time, uh, he won. They won the batting title, but he, he has not won a Gold Glove. Um, so Trey Young, I'm sorry, Trey Turner. The Trey Young is another story, but Trey Turner ended up finishing an All Star the previous three seasons, uh, MVP, top ten finish the last four seasons, uh, second best shortstop statistically. As I said, finished second, second, third in uh, def- in WAR at the shortstop position. Trey Turner was the second best free agent to be had in the free agent class of 2022. Obviously, Aaron Judge, number one. We'll save Aaron Judge for another day. Perhaps we'll bring Bob Nightingale onto the show to talk about Aaron Judge. What I thought is interesting about Trey Turner is there was a story uh, by Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. Um, it was on December 1st and basically outlined exactly what Trey Turner's contract was going to look like and what a lot of these people are doing when they're making the contract evaluations for players Um, because the market has been dictated over the past four seasons for what a player of Trey Turner's caliber or a player of Aaron Judge's caliber is worth in the open market and it is basically such that you will get paid until you are either 36, 37, 38, or 39 years old because you've hit unrestricted free agency for the first time you will get paid up until somewhere between your 37 and age 39 season, you will get an average annual value that if you take less years is higher, and if you take more years will be slightly less because teams are projecting that you will have some form of a decline later on in your career. And so the flips or the upside is that that secures you the extra few years because you don't know whether you're guaranteed to get another contract or not at 36 years old. Sometimes it works out in the case of Justin Verlander. Sometimes it works out in the case of Nelson Cruz. Worked out for a couple years in the case of Edwin Encarnacion coming off the eight-year deal he signed with the Blue Jays. I know these are contracts from like 10 to 12 years ago, so they're not the best way to determine the market, but the, the, the structure still applies, and it's the only sample we have for players who got big contracts made it to 36 37 and then were eligible for new extensions and then sometimes you have a Hanley Ramirez where you strike out 
pun intended. Sometimes you have a Pablo Sandoval, where at the end of your career, you're a journeyman making the league minimum. And sometimes you have cases like Chris Davis, where you are forced into medical retirement in the middle of your contract. Prince Fielder also forced into medical retirement in the middle of his gigantic and probably pretty bad contract. So because all of that is kind of set up in such a way, what this Kylie McDaniel article does is basically points out what is the wins above replacement for the player in question and what is their age? Because if you're slated to make money, get a contract that will pay you in between your age 37 and age 39 season, then your age matters in terms of determining the contract length. And so for Mookie Betts, who signed an extension two years ago, his contract with an insane MVP level wins above replacement of 22.2, Mookie Betts got a 12-year extension at $365 million, which is still a record setter. And Manny Machado, who hit free agency at 26 three off-seasons ago, no, four off-seasons ago, three years ago. Manny Machado hit free agency at 26 and got a 10-year contract, which will only pay him until he is 36. And by the way, that contract has opt-outs at 31 where he could sign a contract that pays him uh, similar to what Aaron Judge is about to re-sign for, or what, similar to what Aaron Judge is about to sign for. Might re-sign, might not re-sign. Um, but then you could point to the Chris Bryant contract who hits free agency at 30 and he only gets paid seven years. Anthony Rendon, who hit free agency at 29, two years ago, he only gets paid a seven year contract. Now it's way more than Rendon is worth in hindsight, but a seven year contract. So then you look at Freddie Freeman last year because he's 32, it's a six year contract. You basically get paid till you're 37, 38 or 39 when you hit free agency on these types of contracts. And what this article outlined is that Trey Turner had a chance of reaching $300 million. And then if you combine this with what uh, MLB um, transaction report, which is a really good website, I think it's MLB TTR on Twitter. um, They collected basically a projection that said Trey Turner's looking at an eight year contract somewhere in the, you know, the average of, the top paid position players. Um, I listed some of the names there. Corey Seager, $32.5 million per year. Uh, Anthony Rendon on a shorter-term contract made uh, $35 million per year. Uh, Marcus Semien, who's a lesser player than Trey Turner at 31 years old, got a seven-year contract for $25 million per year. You could look at Chris Bryant last offseason and his contract. He had an average annual value of approximately $28 million per year. So you're looking at a circumstance in which uh, Trey Turner, according to the MLB transaction report, had him getting an eight-year contract that would pay him until he's 36, or sorry, 37, through his age 37 season. His birthday's in June, so roughly 37. It would pay him until he's 37, making about $32 million per year. And what Trey Turner ultimately ended up signing was an 11-year contract that got him to the $300 million threshold. And we'd kind of known since even the middle of last season that Trey Turner wanted to go east. He's from the East Coast. It was widely reported that he wanted to go to Philadelphia or he wanted to go to the New York Mets, perhaps to leverage the two teams against each other. They knew Philadelphia was the place they wanted to go to 
And so I don't know if he was willing to take less and if uh, the gun-toting Texas Rangers were going to put him in center field for a, a giant contract or something like that. I thought what was interesting was that Trey Turner ended up going to Philadelphia and taking the longer-term contract that would pay him until he's 40 and so, took the the offer that had a significantly lower average annual value but secured him at least $10 million per season when he's 38, 39 years old. And I don't know how MLB players age. I would have guessed that a player like Jose Batista would have aged a whole lot better than he did. Or I would have guessed that uh, a player like, I'm not, I'm not going to say Miguel Cabrera. It was kind of like, Miguel Cabrera is a crazy party guy, so maybe the writing wasn't on the wall there. Albert Pujols would have thought that contract would have aged better. And so I don't know exactly what makes for a best player. And so I fall into the stereotypes of like Trey Turner's game is built on speed, but he also hits for power. So like, I have no idea whether Trey Turner sold himself short on the back end of that contract or if he could negotiate a new deal. And if there's opt outs somewhere in the deal, or if he traded something in exchange for having a no trade clause, which is something that happened in his contract. There's so many interesting moving factors for a contract that felt like it was a little bit of a foregone conclusion. We kind of knew that if you'd been following baseball circles, you kind of knew that Trey Turner was angling to go to Philadelphia. And you kind of knew that Philadelphia was ready to upgrade from Gene Segura, who had been a serviceable shortstop for many years. Also a player they gave up J.P. Crawford for, who was the leadoff hitter on the playoff Mariner team this year. So like they had made that swap of Segura for J.P. Crawford, and now that opens up an opportunity for Trey Turner to get paid to be the shortstop of the Phillies for the next 10 seasons. Because ultimately, regardless of what the dollar value is, again, baseball's financial structures are so unique and so interesting. Regardless of what you're paying in terms of dollar value, what you are paying for when you sign Trey Turner is our shortstop is filled for the next decade. When the Padres give Manny Machado $30 million a year at 26 years old, what you're paying for is the third base position is secured for the next five to 10 seasons. And when San Diego did that to Fernando Tatis, you're saying the next decade, that's our shortstop. And then all of a sudden they were in on the Trey Turner game, which we found out in hindsight, like I think the resistance was kind of doing a solid to kind of boost the loss, the contract value of Trey Turner. Cause it was reported like the Padres only offered five years at 180 million or something like that, which again, super high average annual value, like 36 million a year. But like not going to compete with 11 years and $300 million given that Trey Turner also wanted to play on the East coast and had no, this had been like forecasted for six months that he wanted to go back to the East coast. I knew this when the Padres were playing the Dodgers in the playoff last year, that Trey Turner was a free agent and Trey Turner wanted to go to the East coast. And so because it had been kind of a foregone conclusion, that that was going to be the case. I'd already done the think piece on like, okay, the the Dodgers gave up all of their farm system for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, both of which are no longer with the team, both of which also gave them a very serviceable two seasons. Like the, the reason the Dodgers won 111 games last year is Trey Turner, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts at the top of that order. You can put a rotating door of uh, Cody Bellinger's and Joey Gallo's and Chris Taylor's you can put the rotating doors in the middle and 
you can also put Will Smith, who again is one of these cheap contract guys. You can slide that in there and be fine. And there's no, you know, you're going to win 111 games and you can lose Walker Bueller, who is their number two starter, and be fine. Because Julio Urias finally blossoms into a game one starter. And Clayton Kershaw is still someone who's worth 20 to $25 million as a Hall of Famer who is, relatively speaking, not making that much money. So when the Dodgers have infinite resources, they built that team on Mookie Betts and Carlos, or sorry, uh, they might sign Carlos Correa, but Mookie Betts and Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman, and they might just slide Carlos Correa in place of Trey Turner and try and keep the machine moving because of infinite resources like the New York Mets did, where the New York Mets are like, oh, we lose DeGrom, slide in Verlander, keep it moving. And I bet you sometime in the next week we might hear that, oh, lose Trey Turner, let's get cheaper Trey Turner and slide Carlos Correa in and just keep the machine moving because the Dodgers can do that. Like, I think it's interesting that that's the strategy they took because, again, the Dodgers are able to just replenish the farm system in the same way we talked about with the Astros about a month ago. It's really interesting to watch that happen. And I'm interested to see what San Diego does now that they've given away all of the players that used to make them the top farm system, and now they're kind of hanging in the middle of the pack, which suggests to me that they won't have the competitive advantage of being able to develop more players to fill the spaces that have been vacated because you just traded away your players who represent the future to the team you've sent them to. I mean, the Nationals got nine top 200 prospects. I mean, they don't go further than 100 based on the projections I'm seeing, but they got nine great prospects in exchange for one trade with the Dodgers, one trade with the Padres. They walked away with nine players, including Josiah Gray and C.J. Abrams. And if you don't follow baseball closely, maybe those are names that don't jump off the page to you. Uh, Kiebert Ruiz, who hasn't been great, so maybe that one won't turn into something. He was once upon a time a top 20 prospect in baseball. He kept going down. They kept holding out on a trade, and then they ultimately sent him to Washington. The Dodgers did in that um, Trey Turner and uh, Max Scherzer trade. The, you know, the one that we talked about in the Star Wars anthem. And so I'm just super interested to see how Trey Turner's contract moves and from the Dodgers standpoint, how you just keep the machine rolling. Because they always do, at least for the last decade, they've always been able to keep the machine rolling because they've always had a new person to slide in place. Now, whether that's Gavin Lux moving over to shortstop or whether that's giving Carlos Correa eight years on a giant contract and you're betting on four years of productive value from Correa because you have the infinite resources to move off of the last few years of the contract, whatever the the circumstance is for the Dodgers, how they keep that one rolling. And I think that part's something that's going to be answered over the next year, just as the Trey Turner contract details that are also interesting. I mean, it's pretty straightforward from the Philadelphia standpoint. You are swapping Gene Segura, who was their eight hitter, great defensive shortstop, came up big in the playoffs for them, a very solid shortstop who they exchanged for J.P. Crawford, you're making the upgrade to a star shortstop in Trey Turner, who you're spending significantly more money on and expecting now him to be your number one or number two hitter in a lineup that also has JT Realmuto and Kyle Schwarber, who was amazing last year, and Bryce Harper, who just had like the greatest postseason non-Randy Arena category in the last decade. And I think that's super interesting to watch play out because Philly has the money. Philly wants to get in this game. They just had a surprise World Series run, and the contract details stipulate that Trey Turner 
wanted the, the long-term security to be in Philadelphia, which suggests that's the place he wanted to be, perhaps, which I guess is possibly like reading the room because we knew that Trey Turner wanted to go. That part's interesting from the Philadelphia standpoint. From the Dodgers standpoint, I'm interested to see how this plays out and how they just keep the machine rolling, whether that's with prospects or whether that's sliding in another slightly lesser version of Trey Turner and trying to keep the machine rolling, pay slightly less and get slightly less production, whether that's Carlos Correa, whether that's Dansby Swanson, whatever they end up doing, or maybe they make a trade, kind of like what uh, the Braves did last offseason when when Freddie Freeman signs with the Dodgers and then they just go out and trade for Matt Olson and Matt Olson is getting slightly less production than Freddie Freeman while making slightly less money than Freddie Freeman because uh, they basically got the same contract, but Matt Olson's was eight years and Freddie Freeman's was six years. They both got the, the, the same money that the Braves were going to give to Freddie Freeman. They just gave to Matt Olson. They just had to give up prospects to make it happen. And so it's interesting to see these teams with the infinite resources in the unique structures of baseball just basically say, we'll pivot. We didn't get our first option, but we'll slide in our plan B. And that's going to make everything better. And, you know, in the case of Trey Turner, might make Philadelphia better, might not. We'll see what happens because. No singular player can have a significant impact on a baseball team uh, in the way that they do in other sports. It's just the way that the sport is structured. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you for stopping in. Make sure to leave a five-star review, a download, however and whenever it is that you might be listening. We always appreciate your support and your feedback. We're going to have more episodes coming at you every single day. They might not be baseball-related, They will be sports-related, some way, shape, or form. We'll get basketball in here at some point. We'll have guests join the show. It'll be great. So hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. And as always, take it easy. Episode 4. The Holy Dodger Empire continues their reign over the West. In previous years, the Holy Dodger Empire dismantled the once great Royal Cardinals, establishing a new power within the galaxy. The Holy Dodger Empire defeated the Royal Cardinals, invaded the Mill of Waukee, and vanquished the 107-win Giants. In the meantime, the Holy Dodger Empire pillaged both the Purple Rockies and the Backs of Diamond in Arizona. These invasions increase the Empire's wealth tenfold. Their resources are unmatched. Their power is unquestioned. With the West and the Central firmly in control, the Holy Dodger Empire sets their sights on a new conquest, the Eastern Empire State. If the Holy Dodger Empire defeats Master Cohen and his Met army of queens, there will be nothing left to stop them from conquering the galaxy. To the south, a small resistance forms in San Diego. While outnumbered and outresourced, the resistance fights for their very existence against the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. It's a changing time in the galaxy. The once great Imperial Nationals of Washington have fallen. Years earlier, the Imperial Nationals once defeated the Holy Dodger Empire at the Battle of Strasbourg. Now, they find themselves bankrupt and selling pieces to the highest bidder. In this collapse, 
the Holy Dodger Empire captured a great captain known as Mad Max, who helped strengthen the Holy Dodger Empire's hold on the galaxy. However, Mad Max has escaped and defected to Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens. He will spend whatever years he has left fighting to dismantle the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. And now, the legendary Imperial Captain Juan Soto has joined the Resistance after paying his debt to Kara the Hutt. To San Diego, Captain Juan Soto brings with him the Imperial Nationals' mighty Josh Bell. Joining Captain Soto is Lord Hader, the supreme closer of the Mill of Waukee, called to fight by the message of the Resistance and the possibility of bringing balance to the Force. The Resistance has paid a heavy price, yet they have never been closer to defeating the Holy Dodger Empire.